This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 19th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, over the past few weeks, we've talked with various experts about their points of view on how this epidemic has unfolded. Today, let's talk about where we are right now and where we might be heading. So let's start with the status report. Where are we now? And how do we know where we are? Steve, let me start with the second part of your question. It is difficult to know where things stand given fairly limited surveillance data in most countries. This has always been a problem because infection can range from completely asymptomatic to severe, and we're missing a lot of those cases on the less symptomatic part of the range just because they never get tested and never end up in case counts. Now, the fact that most people can test at home and those results are not reportable makes it even more difficult to really count the number of cases. So given that the case counts have always been incomplete and that the case ascertainment rate has changed over the course of the epidemic, most significantly when new home testing came out, it's a little difficult to tell what's going on. In fact, it's quite difficult to tell what's going on. But that being said, if you look around at the various websites that count COVID cases, they're reporting mixed numbers. There are some sharp rises in some countries and declines in others. Here in the U.S., it appears that the case rate is slowly rising. Eric, you raise many important points that we need to reflect on. How we count cases now that there is home testing, at least in resource-rich environments like the U.S., changes the dynamic of understanding the burden of infection in our communities. Because two years ago, and even a year ago, it was largely PCR-driven, centrally performed, and accounted for. Now it's incredibly decentralized, which is terrific, but it really poses challenges to our public health community to understand the burden of infection. We also need to think a bit about how these tests perform over time, whether it's the test kit quality or alterations in how the virus behaves in the upper or lower respiratory tract. There are variables that we need to keep up with to understand how accurate different technologies are to even be able to diagnose COVID infection. This does raise the specter that we do need to think a bit about in terms of our investment in diagnostics. And that has, in my view, always been woefully inadequate particularly high-quality diagnostics, whether it's for COVID or other infections. And we need to think about that as a community. And to me, that is one of the lessons I've reflected on over the last two years, is how are we able to diagnose SARS-CoV-2 infection in a high-quality manner and be able to track it? I also reflect on macro-community indicators, and I think of them in two ways. One is perhaps a better determinant of community infection is wastewater surveillance. And that can tell us what the burden of viruses in the community through what I would say is an unbiased detection system, as we understand how to quantitate in sewage, allowing us to understand the burden of virus in the community. And what we are able to see from that vantage point is increasing infection in many communities. But the flip side of that which I think is something we as a community also have to reflect on is what does that mean? 
whether the amount of COVID infection in the community is what we care about or the amount of COVID infection causing hospitalization. And with our hospitalizations, at least in Boston, staying steady, but I think that reflects what I hear going on in many parts of the country and the world, what we may be seeing is continued substantial community transmission with substantial limitation of severe illness as measured by the need to be hospitalized from COVID. So these are some of the parameters that have changed over the last two years as technology has advanced, but also as we need to rethink how we understand the burden of COVID infection and what it means for health. Lindsay, you bring up a couple of very important points. Following the rate of infection using objective criteria like wastewater really does work. The sampling is pretty inconsistent, though, from community to community. Not all that many communities are able to follow wastewater levels of virus. So we have these sort of sentinel sites. I think that the issue of testing is important. And as you suggest, there's a different threshold for sensitivity of the various tests. And as we change technologies, the number of cases we pick up vary tremendously. For example, antigen testing is fairly sensitive, but it's sensitive close to the time of infection and drops off after that. Whereas PCR has this long tail of positivity, mainly it's easier to diagnose cases retrospectively, and that will have an influence on the total numbers that you measure. Serology has a long tail to it, but unfortunately is much less accurate than testing for virus. The other point I'd make is not only have we underinvested in testing, but we've tremendously underinvested in surveillance. That's been true since the beginning of the epidemic and continues now. So the reason that our numbers aren't very good is that we're not doing systematic surveillance in very many places. But whatever the numbers, how much of the outbreak is currently being driven by the appearance of new viral variants? Interestingly, Steve, I think we know more about the variants than we know about the actual numbers because there is more systematic testing going on at several sites for what viral variants are out there. For a long time, BA5 has been the dominant viral variant. And at most sequencing centers, it remains the dominant virus. However, there are newer viruses that have recently shown increases. The nomenclature is a bit confusing. Remember that all of the current viruses circulating either belong to a large family that we call Omicron or are recombinant viruses containing Omicron sequences. However, Omicron viruses are very diverse and there are a number of sublineages. We've already had outbreaks caused by several of these, including the current BA5. Now there are several more circulating, though we don't know which ones might be more problematic. The WHO calls these subvariants under monitoring as opposed to variants of concern. And as of last week, they had listed several variants that included previously circulating viruses, such as BA275, BA2320, BJ1, all of which come from the BA2 family, and BA46. There are more exotic recombinants like XBB, but it's important to remember that other viral variants have come and gone without causing large numbers of cases. In addition, some variants have caused outbreaks in some countries, but have been largely absent in others. Interesting to think about exotic variants. But I think your point, Eric, is that from a scientific side, 
We are sequencing large numbers of viruses over a very short period of time, something which has been unprecedented scientifically. Thus, we are in a position in an unprecedented way to have a window into the genomic variability of SARS-CoV-2 as it replicates across populations. But we don't yet understand what different sequence variants mean. And in part, this is what evolution does. If you have large numbers of progeny with tremendous genetic variability, some of them, perhaps an extremely small number, may develop an advantage which allows facilitated transmission and therefore replication. I don't think we are in a place scientifically yet to understand what variations in the genome mean of SARS-CoV-2, but it is terrific to be able to sequence and observe these changes. We just have to interpret them with caution until we get a little bit smarter about ways to understand what they mean. So what are those viral advantages? What makes a successful virus? What makes a successful variant? Well, it's a great question. And obviously, as Lindsay just suggested, we don't know enough to be able to predict what they'll be. But we do know the types of characteristics that those successful viruses have to have. For one thing, they have to avoid host immunity. And that means that they bind less avidly to antibodies that people have made to either prior viruses they've been infected with or to vaccines, and that they avoid cell-mediated immunity enough to allow them to replicate. In addition, they have to transmit efficiently. We really don't understand the variables that affect transmission very well. However, there are some hypothesized qualities involving how tightly the virus binds to receptors and how rapidly it replicates in individual cells. So we don't really understand that part of it, and it's a very important part of being able to cause disease. Now, notice what I didn't mention is the ability to cause severe disease. There isn't really an evolutionary selection to cause severe disease. There is, however, a selection to produce a lot of virus. And there may be some correlation between the severity of disease and the ability to produce virus and transmit it forward. We don't really know that for sure, though. So, Steve, this is such a fundamental question in evolution. And when I think about it, you know, sort of Eric is alluding to, I think about it from the virus's perspective. The virus has to engage me, find a target tissue where it can bind, my nasal or pharyngeal mucosa, bind, get into a cell, replicate, avoid my immune response, then replicate at a level or send progeny to a place where I can now spread it, meaning high titer again in my nose and mouth so that I can breathe on those around me. So what makes the virus successful is where it can augment its ability to replicate and work its way through each of those steps most efficiently. And Eric, as you alluded to, one of the key elements there is how does it avoid the host immune response which is trying to prevent acquisition or dampen down replication. There's the humoral side, the cellular side, but there are also aspects of the virus that will then adapt in response to host adaptive immunity. But this also requires the virus to be able to cold adapt. When I cough and it is in the air between me and you, can the virus withstand the physical properties 
of that environment for what period of time. So there are a variety of features that the virus is adapting to, some of which depend on us, some of which depend on the mode of transmission, and then what selective pressures are on the virus at each of those points. That's why for many of these viruses like SARS-CoV-2, but it's brethren respiratory viruses, we worry when it gets cold out because we as people congregate together and that then makes it easier for it spread from person A to person B in a closed environment, perhaps a store or a mall or a public transportation or other arenas where we're next to each other. So I think there are a variety of features, Steve, that we have to think about as we think about viral efficiency and its ability to transmit and the nature of selective pressure. I do want to draw a distinction with other kinds of viruses, let's say rabies, where the selective pressure on rabies is largely between bats. Humans are not the amplifier and the spreader. So that a rabies virus, for example, needs to really be successful in how it replicates and transmits in its reservoir, which has nothing to do with humans and then will occasionally spill over. SARS-CoV as a predominantly human respiratory virus is really figuring out our behavioral and our immunologic responses and how to be more efficient in taking advantage of those interactions. Lindsay, the one thing I'd add is the importance of animal models in a lot of infectious disease research. When we have a good animal model, we can make some predictions about immune evasion and about virulence. Now, for COVID, we don't really have a great animal model because most of the animals that we use, primarily primates, are relatively resistant to the virus and they don't develop severe disease. On top of that, though, we have very few models of transmission for any infectious disease. Generally, we just have to look at human transmission. So we're stuck with epidemiology as our tool to understand transmission. And that works for some diseases, but it works better, of course, if you can identify those who are infected without having good surveillance, harking back to a previous question, it's very difficult to have the data to understand transmissibility. Eric, you're absolutely right in that the host pathogen interaction has incredible species specificity. And we need to develop models that can allow us to control variables and more efficiently study different parameters of a pathogen. But ultimately, there really are species specificity in the host pathogen interaction, in this case, the human SARS-CoV-2 interaction. One other parameter which is implied, and we've discussed on previous podcasts, is the compartment issue. Not only do we have to understand innate and adaptive immune responses, we need to understand their presence, abundance, effectiveness, where the virus most needs to be to transmit. And in this case, it's the respiratory mucosa, particularly the upper respiratory mucosa. And that's something that at least my impression is leads to some of the dissonance between the diminution of severe illness because systemic immune responses seem to be pretty strong as measured by severe illness hospitalization, but look to me to be pretty weak in mucosal compartments as measured by high levels of transmissibility. But that's inference, but it speaks to your point, Eric, about the epidemiology, the models, and the systematic assessment to be able to measure key parameters in these spaces. 
So that's what the virus is doing. What should we be doing with regard to vaccines as the virus produces new variants? Well, it's a great question, Steve. The truth is we have very limited tools because, of course, it takes a while to produce a new vaccine. So right now we basically have one tool only because the bivalent vaccines, which include the original strain and an Omicron strain, either BA5 if you live in the United States or BA1 if you live in several other countries. So how good is that? Well, if we were to guess, a vaccine which contains Omicron antigens is certainly likely to be better than one that doesn't. However, the current variants have evolved in the background of a lot of immunity to various Omicron strains. So it's very likely that vaccines that we have today will be imperfect as new variants arrive. Remember that we still haven't seen any clinical data to determine how effective these vaccines are likely to be. So we're still waiting to see if even in this time when BA5 is still circulating, the vaccines have offered much of an improvement. We're hopeful, but we don't yet know. Steve, I sort of think about this in that monoclonal antibodies, vaccines, infection, are different ways to afford protection against the virus or its variants. When I think about monoclonal antibodies, they're really targeting a specific epitope, one that scientifically has been determined to be relevant to viral pathogenesis and to protection, often an immunodominant response in people who previously recovered, and then a sequence or an aspect of the virus that appears conserved broadly and likely to be present going forward. But it's very targeted so that the virus can mutate. And if it mutates the target of that monoclonal antibody, then it can escape at different levels. If you use two antibodies, you require two different target sites to change, but it's still very targeted. For certain infections, let's say hepatitis B, the surface antigen is highly conserved over time, probably because we've co-evolved with hep B for millennia. So that that is not a target that varies. So hepatitis B, immune globulin, you know, things which target that antigen. Now, it's not a monoclonal, but it is targeting a conserved antigen that, for the most part, really doesn't change. SARS-CoV-2, as we've been discussing, is in the process of rapid evolution and change. Therefore, we do see loss of these single targets. I think vaccinations bring out multiple immune responses, multiple epitopes, still to the spike sequence being used. And Eric, as you point out, when you have the bivalent vaccines, you have two different spike sequences. So there's some variability, but for the most part, the spike is conserved. There's just some variability in some of the key target sequences, but it's a bit more variable. And that can elicit both an antibody response and a T-cell response, which can afford protection beyond the simple sequence of Omicron or ancestral. And then the issue of wild-type infection has the whole viral genome that one's being exposed to. So I think that there are different ways to think about vaccine or monoclonal antibody immune protection and the breadth that's elicited and likely to afford some protection with the vaccines and prior natural infection as new variants emerge. The degree to which it affords protection will depend on the viral evolution and the advantages of evolutionary changes. 
this speaks to Eric, sort of your point about the new vaccines, particularly the Omicron based vaccines, be they BA1 or BA45. And here we're in a fascinating predicament. The virus is evolving quickly. We now have tools that can develop countermeasures within weeks of our determining their potential benefit. But clinical data takes more time than that. And how do we as a community weigh the viral evolution escape, our ability to generate a new tool like bivalent vaccines, and the time it takes to do studies to understand the clinical benefit? And I think we as a community are going to have to weigh carefully how we look at the body of evidence and the potential changes in the pathogen, in this case, SARS-CoV-2, and the need to respond quickly with a countermeasure with incomplete data. And that is something we've dealt with over the last two and a half years. I think we're in so much better place where we actually can develop tools in months to weeks, but we will have to carefully manage the emerging data while the tools are developed and potentially deployable. Yeah, I'd be a little careful, Lindsay. I agree, but it takes weeks to develop a laboratory tool which can be tested in animals and give some idea of cross-reactivity. Actually developing a vaccine that can be put into people's arms and then going through the approval process is more of a month's scale. And that is important, as you said, because over the course of months, we're already facing new variants. So we're always playing catch up in this game. But I guess, Eric, I would say we are playing catch up, but I do think it is terrific that we're in a position that within weeks to months of a new variant emerging, we can potentially have a matched vaccine. For influenza, this has been an incredible headache for decades, where every year we hope that the vaccine that we have chosen and deployed, usually six months in advance, matches the circulating strain. So how do we apply emerging technologies that give us as a scientific and public health community tools that we haven't had before to the point where we can react to pathogen alterations in a very short cycle time. And it builds on the safety data from billions of people having received it, the efficacy data from prior studies with its analog, and the in vitro data which allows us to understand activity against the new pathogen or the variant pathogen. Um, so I think it's a terrific place for us to be scientifically. We just as a community have to really carefully think through what these observations mean and how do we use them rapidly to improve health? Because I don't think it's acceptable what has gone on for the last 10 or 20 years for flu, where we have 50,000 deaths a year in this country for flu on average, and that we've accepted. And I would argue we should not accept that. We should be looking at these technologies and apply them to the kinds of pathogens that cause pandemic disease every year. We just don't look at it that way because we've gotten used to the flu. So taking the discussion of therapeutics further, does the appearance of new variants change our approach to treating COVID-19? We've spent a lot of time today talking about evolution. And evolution occurs because there are selective pressures. So. Fortunately, or unfortunately, it depends on your viewpoint, the use of antiviral agents has been rather limited. A very small number of people have been exposed to the current agents we have, and therefore there's been very little selective pressure on viruses. So at least at a community level, we're not seeing the appearance of 
widespread antiviral resistance. There are certainly case reports, but right now we don't see it largely in the community. If more people were treated, it's likely we would see more resistance. Monoclonal antibodies, on the other hand, are a different sort of reagent, and Lindsay just spoke about them in detail. They're designed to be very specific for antigenic determinants, and those antigenic determinants are also under selection by host immunity. So we do see variable effectiveness of different monoclonals as new variants appear. Now, oddly, sometimes we lose the ability to use a monoclonal, and sometimes we gain the ability to use an older monoclonal that now has regained the ability to bind to that new virus. But it is really important to test as new viral variants become dominant if we're going to continue to use these agents. I agree. I think it's selective pressure on the pathogen. That's what leads to resistance or evasion of that selective pressure. And I completely agree, Eric. I think the small molecule antiviral selective pressure is trivial given the global burden of COVID. For the MABs, I think the selective pressure of the use of MABs is trivial. But as you point out, Eric, the genesis of the MABs come from adaptive immunity to the dominant circulating viruses. Therefore, they represent what is likely to be broad immune responses from background infection. Therefore, the pressure on viral escape of the MABs is quite broad because it represents broad community immunity from prior infection. So I think the evasion of MABs speaks to their genesis, while the evasion for antivirals will likely be related to their use in relation to the amount of virus circulating in the world, which at this point, I think, is incredibly small. Lindsay and Steve, I think it's important to put this entire conversation in context. It is true that evolution will continue to operate and is likely to continue to select for new variants that can escape some of the measures that we're taking. On the other hand, the background level of immunity has increased tremendously, both because of vaccination and because of prior infection. And these two forces really have changed the shape of the epidemic. Clearly, as you said earlier, Lindsay, the hospitalization rates and death rates have really plunged in much of the world. And that's likely to continue. So we are making progress. Vaccines still make a difference. They make less of a difference than they did at the beginning of the epidemic, but they continue to help. We continue to have therapeutic agents that help individuals who do get infected. So I think we're not in a bad place right now, but we're going to continue to have to be vigilant as these new strains appear. And I think our biggest enemy right now is complacency, the idea that it's all over and we don't have to do anything further. I think we do have to continue to watch out. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.